0: Okay, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm completely delighted to be here in in Melbourne. Um, The talk says, you know, why we post the anthropology of social media. And obviously, I come as an anthropologist. And in fact, a few years ago, when I got the grant, it was a significant grant, I thought, you know, great, finally, I have some money, I can do some, like, serious anthropology. And then I thought to myself, but, you know, what does that mean? Um, because I'd never had a grant of this scale before, and most people don't. And it suddenly occurred to me that the things we call disciplines are, to some degree, actually the result of constraint. Um, when I read what anthropologists claim they are, or claim they would do, it's all about you know, this great comparative agenda. Um, and actually, almost all the studies are individuals. Many because that's the most funding you tend to get. So in some ways, once I got this grant, I thought, okay, when I say this is going to be the anthropology of social media, um, don't do what we've done before. Do what we haven't been able to do before. Actually, try and live up to those kind of claims. So one of the things you'll hear about is the formation of a project which was far more collaborative, and far more comparative um, than one has tended to get in other kinds of studies. And one of the effects of that is it's actually a team of nine, and we all work together, and we all carried out our ethnographies, each of them 15 months, uh, simultaneously. So that when I give a talk, it could actually be any of us giving that talk. If I talk about scalable sociality, I can't tell which of us came up with the idea. It all comes out of the collective discussion. And indeed, a lot of what we produce, we produce without any particular author. So this is a a team talk, as it were. Um, Now... The reason anthropologists might be particularly interested in something like social media is not hard to work out in the sense that, particularly at the beginning, because they weren't called social media then. It was called social networking sites, if you remember that. And I sort of remember that, you know, go to a party or something and somebody says, well, what do you do? And I say, well, look, I'm an anthropologist. I'm like, What's that? So, we you know we study people. And say, well, don't psychologists do that? And so Yeah, but um, I suppose a psychologist studies a person as an individual. Whereas anthropologists, we study people as social networking sites. Think of things like kinship. So, there's a kind of natural affinity between a topic like this and what we otherwise would do. Um, but the reason for embarking on this particular study was a kind of frustration, because as social networking sites become social media, and you're reading the newspapers and you're looking at other accounts, there are so many claims out there about the consequences of this stuff. Oh, um, people don't understand what a friend is anymore. Oh, um, people's attention span is now reduced, etc., um, etc. Et and it, if you're an anthropologist, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, actually, who are we talking about is this indian farmers factory workers in china i mean is it all the same for everyone and our job is to try and answer that question now you can't study everywhere um, but we had a shot basically what we did was we had the nine studies and these are the studies that i'll be talking about so very quickly um, you've got Nell Haynes right in the north of Chile, right, a sort of place set in the desert which is um, there because of copper mining. Um, you've got Juliana Speyer who's working in a, a, a sort of low-income settlement in Bahia, in Brazil, sort of behind a the tourist there. This is the, sort of the builders, the waiters, the cleaners, etc. Um, you've got somebody many of you will know because she's here, Juliana um working in, again, a relatively low-income area of Trinidad. Um, I worked in some villages, which I'll talk about, a bit north of London. Um, In anthropology, we tend to mix it up. So we have an Italian anthropologist, Elisabetta Costa, but she actually worked in Turkey, right on the border between Syria and Turkey. So it's a place you will otherwise know about because of things going on there at the moment. Um, On the other hand, Razvan Nicolescu is from Romania. He actually worked in Italy, right in the south. Um, You've got Shuram van Katraman, who's working near Chennai, right in the south of India. And then China's the one place where we have two studies. A nice contrast, really, because you've got Tom McDonald working in a more traditional area of China, um, sort of near the birthplace of Confucius, very much with traditional Chinese values. And then you've got Xinyuan Wong, who's working in one of these big factories, um, you know, 250 million people have migrated from the rural area to the factories. So she's living in a factory for 15 months and finding out that what is going on there is very different from things that we tend to generalize about um, when we're talking about um, China. So that's kind of the the sort of area we're trying to um, encompass. Now, when you've got a series of sites like that, it's certainly tempting to do little sort of surveys um, that compare the nine sites. And while we did some, and we can end up with infographs that look like that, um, or look like this, or indeed this, or I think finally that, Um, we're pretty circumspect about using this kind of material because what the hell does it mean when a bunch of people stand for Italy and anyway we find half the time people mean different things by the same questions so we have that kind of material um, but to be honest um, we don't actually make a lot of it. Instead I want to talk about some of the basic principles that have come out from this study um, and sort of generalizations that kind of inform the way we think about it. And I'm going to deal with three quickly. The first one, which was developing already, which was called polymedia, was basically the sense that in many of the areas that we work in, um, previously people had uh, chosen a particular media to use for reasons either of cost or of access. That was the one they could afford or they could get hold of. What's happening now is, as you get like phone plans, internet plans, and so forth, cost itself is not the significant reason, and you've got access to a whole lot of alternatives. Now, our argument is, first, of course, that means um, that, basically, you can only understand one of these platforms or media in relation to all the others, um, but it also has another quite significant meaning. What we argue is that polymedia represents a sense that media generally has been, in a sense, re socialized and re moralized. Because if you think about it, when the reason you picked a media was because of cost or access, then that was the reason. But if it's not the reason anymore, and somebody says, oh, you know, he dumped her boyfriend on whatsapp and it's like but couldn't she have used the phone or done it face to face or um in some other platform then it's a it's it's socially expressive you know why was that one used and it's also morally expressive go, you know gosh you know she <laughs> don't think much of her right or him or whoever did it right so basically it transforms the way we think about media more generally and it puts it much more into the frame if you like of social sciences um so the second point is that if you're going to do all this work on social media you have a kind of responsibility to say what is social media what do we mean by that term um and we came up as a result of this work, with a working definition of what we mean. And briefly, it goes like this. If you look at media historically, essentially you've got, on the one hand, uh, public broadcast media. Radio, TV, you put something out there, and whoever can get access, gets access. And on the other hand, you've got private media, um, like letters, telephone, etc., which tends to be on the one-to-one. Then, in recent periods, um, things have come into the spaces in between, like email and chat rooms, etc. And on the back of that, you see the first. Social media platforms, um, things like Friendster and MySpace, where you're posting, as in public broadcast, but not to a general public, but to a defined public that, for different mechanisms, you know, you've agreed to be friends with them or whatever it is. A smaller group, maybe two, three hundred, etc. Then later on, relatively recently, you've got um, instead of these scaling down from public broadcast, you've got other kinds of platform like WeChat, like WhatsApp, and these take what were like messaging services, etc., and they start to scale upwards. Um, so you may have your WeChat group um, to show off, you know, the, your new baby or whatever it is, to twenty members of the family. Um, so that's going up the group. And unlike the others, this isn't ego set. It's not one particular person. Anybody in that group is equally able to post and to see. So then when you put these trends together... Um, we argue that what's happening now is actually, instead of this dualism between the public and the private, you're actually getting all the kind of group space in between being colonised by all these different alternatives. And the result of that is what we call scalable sociality. Because in social science, what we're interested in is how people associate more than just, if you like, communicate, sociality. And the point about this is it is now scalable. So the kind of scales you can think about, on the one hand, um, the degree of privacy that you want for that particular encounter, the size of group that you that is related to that particular encounter. And as new platforms, etc. come into play, we imagine this scalability um, will um, develop further. So to give an example of that, one of the things I was doing in my work is I worked in four schools and I did a survey of 2,500 school children almost and looked at the, mostly they're using about five different platforms, right? Um, Then if you then look at the platforms from this perspective, what you find is that they form a scale. So the smallest would be something like Snapchat. So on Snapchat, um, it's like with Snapchat you take this kind of, you know, Ugly photo, you you put the camera phone just under your chin, stick it up the nostrils so it's like the worst you can possibly look, right? Now, why do you do that? You send it to your friends and it's like, I trust you, my friend, not to send it to somebody else because I look terrible, right? And so it's a kind of bonding, trust-creating kind of mechanism between a relatively small group. Then in this school, you go up from that to something like WhatsApp. So in the class, you've got a WhatsApp group of the girls where they can talk about the boys and vice versa. And you've got another one which is kind of more collective and where they can sort of talk together. Then you go up from that, you've got Twitter. And Twitter is the main, in these schools, that's where most of the class action happens. A lot of it isn't terribly nice action. There's a lot of taunting and other kinds of nasty things going on. But it is, at the moment, the main arena within which these kids uh, socialise. Um, then you go from that up from that to Facebook, which used to have that function, but now, because it's no longer this little cool peer-to-peer thing, um, that's where you're interacting with your parents, with people from the neighbourhood, possibly you're starting work with your work colleagues, etc., etc. And then you get up to Instagram. Now, Instagram's the only platform where you're actually quite happy to see strangers. And the reason for that is you know you spent a week and you 've got this really nice photo with all its filters etc, and somebody from Estonia uh, liked your photo and it 's like, "Wow you know somebody from Estonia liked my photo and that's kind of cool so basically each of them scales up in terms of the sociality um, that it kind of represents okay so that 's what we think of social media as being, but there's another very important development from this work, which is really more to do with how do we explain what we're finding in relation to what people actually do with social media. And that is coming out of the evidence we have for what we call content migration. Now, on one level, that's pretty straightforward. What we're finding is that the real unit of social media usage, the content, tends to be in Genres, As it always was, right? You have a genre of sociality that was in restaurants and one that was at home and one that was at work. We've always framed our sociality in particular places and contexts. And same when you get into social media, there are particular ways of using it. So if you take those school kids again and the banter between them, you can find that from the playground in a lot of areas where we work, and then went for the playground into things like BBM, because BlackBerry phones were very cheap. And then from BBM, it goes into uh, Facebook, say, more in Trinidad initially. And um, in where I'm working, it goes more into Twitter. So it's the same stuff, but it just goes from place to place to place. Or similarly, you get maybe a new genre. So you get something like the development of the meme, which in a place like Brazil, it might start off on Urkut, then it might go to Facebook, then it might go to WhatsApp, and so forth. Now, this is important to us for a number of reasons. Firstly, as you start to think about it, you realize that this is a lot more common than we normally would acknowledge. Um, And that's even with genres that we're very familiar with. So take an example like email, which is probably the thing I've used most during my life. When I came into email, or email came into being, really, um, it was seen as a stage in breaking down the barriers between work and home, because for 100 years, sort of the system of capitalism, if you like, has tried to um, seal off the work area. So what happens in work is work you don't connect in outside of work because that would detract from your work. And then various things came to dilute that. And email was really significant. So I'm probably not the only person here who probably does more personal stuff at work and more work stuff at home um, than I ought. Okay? Um, so email seems that's what it is. It's the thing that breaks down the barrier between work and the personal. Also, I thought. Then I start working with these groups, Okay, the young people there. And what happens? it's the exact opposite. What young people are doing with email today is never using it for anything personal at all. They might use it for school stuff, they might use it for commercial stuff, they might use it for formal stuff, but it is used to create a barrier between that which is personal and that which isn't personal. So, the very thing I, th- and the, the point is, that's what I thought email was, you know. If you ask me, what does email do? Um, and why does it do it? I said, well, email has these affordances, it has these properties. And because of these properties, it will be used to break down those barriers. And then, another lot come along, and they do the exact opposite. And. It's the same with all of this kind of material. So I'm also, in the initial stages of social media, thinking, oh, we know what Facebook is, right? It's where all that trivial stuff gets exchanged about your day-to-day life and what's going on. Whereas Twitter, oh, that, that gives you information. That's where you go to to get sort of more information. Except, lo and behold, the people I'm studying, what do they do? <laughs> Twitter, as already mentioned, that's all the trivial, bantery, kind of everyday stuff that is discussed. But if you want to find out something from the family or you want to find out where a party is being held, you go onto Facebook, which is basically informational. Now, if you put all that together, it's quite significant. Because as academics, what we want to do is construct explanatory accounts for why people use social media the way they do. So we will go and say, oh, you know, Twitter, well, it has 140 characters, and therefore that explains um, that people would use Twitter in that way, wouldn't they? Um, Or we'll talk about what we call affordances, the um, asymmetry or particular kind of temporality. That would explain why people would use it the way they do. That's kind of what we want to do. But the trouble is, um, actual people, they're really naughty. They really treat us dreadfully, okay? They're doing all this stuff. Um, so they're going from, they're using content, and they're just flipping from one place to another, irrespective of affordances, irrespective of technology, irrespective of platforms, they just don't care. The only thing they cared about in relation to going to Twitter was their parents weren't on it. That was the factor. Um, Otherwise, blissfully using it in, in in this different way. So, what these people are doing and we're finding through our work is tearing down the ways as academics we would as it were naturally have preferred to engage with and explain this kind of material Um, and that's a kind of problem but the effect of that is that when we produce a collective book instead of calling it how did social media change the world we call it How does the world change social media? Because it continually does just that. Which means the emphasis goes from the studying of things like the platforms and affordances, etc., to the cultural context, which may be the alternative way of accounting for what we actually find. So that means, in my case, in this English situation, um, I've got to try and work out what's going on. And it's very important to me that, you know, as opposed to seeing a, a Turkish usage as marked and a Brazilian usage as marked, you've got just as much responsibility for thinking, what is English about the English use of social media? Um, many things can be said, but let me just give kind of one. Um, I did indeed find that over the last couple of years, social media has been turned into an exemplary kind of illustration of Englishness. And that, of course, had a history. What happened in the era I was working was um, social media first comes into the adult world and Um, It seems like an obvious way of connecting up with people, right? So the obvious thing that social media does to you is it gives you connectedness, right? So um, you have friends reunited, and uh, you have, oh, those people I went to school with a long time ago, I'll I'll reconnect with them. Oh, you know, the cousins up in the north that I don't see very often, I'll, I'll reconnect up with them. And also underlying that is a sense that, Oh, once upon a time, we used to live in communities where people were much more socially connected. And because of all sorts of horrible things that have gone on in modern life, that's got fragmented and we've lost that. And so here's a nice opportunity to bring us back to this sense of community. And um, so that's what we do. Um, except, A, for historical reasons I could talk about elsewhere, um, actually, it's not true. English people didn't live in those kind of communities and actually uh, they kept uh, apart in all sorts of ways. But also, when they did this, they mainly found the reasons why they had lost contact with the people at school. They don't have that much in common and actually they suddenly realised that there's a reason they kept in touch with this cousin and not so much in touch with that cousin. So now there's a problem. Um, you've got all this connectedness. So then the next phase is the English produce an English solution. And it's what I call the Goldilocks solution, right? Because Goldilocks, it's like you want everything to be not too warm and not too cold, but somewhere kind of just right in the middle. So what the English do is they actually use modern social media as an instrument for keeping other people at a distance. That is the prime not for bringing in new contacts, but they keep people at a distance, and it should be just the right distance. So, they went on holiday, and you got to know someone maybe a bit better than you possibly should have done, and you don't want to dump them because that's kind of unfriendly, given you did get to know them quite well. But you know they're on Facebook, or you've got your cousin, and you know you're getting to them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's kind of enough. So, you're not defriending, you're not dumping. What you're doing is basically arguing that they're on my Facebook and therefore I don't actually need to kind of talk to them. I don't need to have them into my house. I'm already friendly with them. They're on my Facebook. Um, that's enough. So what Facebook then connotes basically is precisely this kind of, um, here somewhere, uh, oh, that's the book this is about, um, and there's Goldlocks. So basically, it's about keeping people at just the right kind of lukewarm, tepid, you like know, the English weather, distance um, in terms of how you enact social relations. Now, it's certainly true that you would find some of this in all the nine studies that we conducted. But when we sit around and talk about it, we find that the degree to which this dominates English usage of social media is conspicuously English. It's not as dominant or characteristic um, of these other places to quite the same extent. Okay, having then moved to the... I've talked about the generalities, and I've talked about this specificity. Um, So keep that in your head, because now I want to apply that to a couple of areas of the more substantive findings. And I'll talk i uh, see how the time goes, but I'll try and talk about the visual and the political maybe a bit more. Now, at a general level, there is something you can say about the impact of social media and communications. It is, it is that social media has made human communication more visual. It just has, okay? That is to say, think Snapchat, think Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. We used to be mainly communicating through oral or through textual. Now we actually use the visual and its ubiquity as a way of constantly communicating one to another. And that is kind of unprecedented, at least to the degree that we actually do it. and when you look at it, you can see how it builds upon previous kind of developments of visual imagery. So you can think of something like the emoticon, the way it develops into something like the emoji. And then you can see, well, you know, if I could use my own face to express all that, um, why wouldn't I? So then you get the likes of the use of Snapchat. And you can see it developing um, across the kind of genres that were there. So... Um, there, and again, this then splits across the various media that we've just been talking about. So again, you can go from Snapchat and the same kind of interactivity that is typical of Twitter. You can do it visually. Um, you can be nice to your friends. Um, and you can also demonstrate like cleverness. And usually in England, the idea is you, you, you do stuff when it's funny, right? Um, otherwise, you don't. Um, So, this is typical of kind of tweeting visuals. Um, Then on the other hand, you've got the development of, um, each platform does it in its particular way. So, one of the things about Facebook, which came up quite early on, is this notion, which I'll talk about again, which is, you know, oh, it's all this kind of narcissistic self-expression, right? You, 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 you kind of put it out there. Um, it's weird about Facebook visuals, because actually they were never like that, um, in the sense that if you think about Facebook visuals, um, sure, there's all the pictures you put up, right? But actually, there were always two genres there. There were the ones you put up, and there were the ones you were tagged in. Now, if you're going onto somebody's Facebook, which set of visuals would you sooner look at? The ones they put up for themselves, or the ones they were tagged in? Um, I think the answer is um, clear when you consider that those are the pictures I put up myself, and those are the ones I was tagged in, and we move on. Um, So the point being is they're kind of more interesting pictures. So so far from being self, you know, self-expression, it's more like somebody else dressed you to go out in the morning, which is kind of an interesting, different take on, on the way one appears in the public domain. Um, and then building on these, you get these contrasts um, under this notion of polymedia between then uh, Twitter being the clever, the funny one, and Instagram develops as the kind of um, craft the idea that you're actually creating something um, which you might spend quite some time ago on. And then it's subject to the usual parameters of visual form. You can either post something that is in some way intrinsically nice looking um, or... You can, in Bourdieu terms, show how kind of a different kind of aesthetic. Like, if you can show that sunburn can actually look interesting as a picture, then the same kind of ideas apply within the Instagram world. Um, Now, one of the advantages of this is that for somebody doing analysis, you've got thousands and thousands of visual images. And there's a book that uh, Gillian Sondon and myself are working on at the moment called Visualizing Facebook, um, which is basically, we're just enjoying the fact that we've got so many pictures to look at, because typically what one's trying to do is make generalities okay, about what you're seeing in a particular social setting. So when I look through a thousand images, I can see in the English setting the way, for example, um, men associate themselves with beer, to a incredible extent. But I wasn't quite connected with the amount that women associate themselves with wine to just the same extent. And, you know, you can, you can say these things because you're seeing this done not once or 10 times, but hundreds of times. And that allows you to make generalizations. So, for example, in our contrast between um, the two sites where we work, you end up thinking, well, Trinidadians really seem to care about how they dress and look when they're posted online, and English people really don't. Um, And that kind of comes out in the images. You also start to take apart a lot of the generalisations that are made by others about the different genres of the visual that start to emerge. So, because I'm sick to death of being kind of asked about the selfie and the assumptions that people make about what the selfie represents. And the first thing you're doing is saying, well, hold on a minute. Actually, what are we talking about? Because even in the context of where I work, there are many different kinds of selfie. There's the one I just talked about, the ugly, um, which you get circulated around uh, Snapchat. But on my Facebook images, um, so far from being this individualized kind of glamour shot, actually, I found five times as many images which were young people associated with others. It's actually about showing friendship, not individual grammar. You get the glamour shots in, in, um, in Instagram, um, but it's just one kind of selfie. So please, let's actually, if we're going to talk about selfie, talk about the selfies that people actually take. And as you, if you do that, it gives you licence to take these things seriously. And you start to see that actually serious things can be done with something like a selfie. So um, one of the other pieces of work that I was doing at this time was I spent a day a week um, working with uh, hospice patients, people with terminal cancer. And we talked about the various uses of media. And this is one person I work with. His name is Matt Marshall. And he'd was he he'd worked in IT. And it was very interesting because he would talk to me about how he understood the use of Facebook in relation to the disease that he was, he was going through. And how, for example, it was useful in as much as you could tell a lot of people about the latest thing that had happened in terms of chemotherapy or whatever it was, um, all at the same time, not having to tell each one kind of separately, for example. But I thought one of the most interesting things he said... And he said, you know, yes, I use it to, to, to go out to the wider public and talk to them about what is happening to me. Um, but at the same time, what may be equally important is that having to do that is also the way I am coming to terms myself, acknowledging to myself what is actually happening. And then, at around that time, he put as his cover picture... Not just a selfie, but as you can see, a mirror selfie. And to me, that was an incredibly succinct way of actually summarizing the discussions that we had been having. Not only this was a particular phase of coming out of chemotherapy, when he felt he could show himself again to the world, but also simultaneously acknowledging that to himself. So if you think of you know, Valachas and Las Memininas and Bucca, etc., the kind of complexities of different kind of visual interplay going on here um, work in genres that we otherwise can be very dismissive of. Um, Similar point can be made about a genre that is also new in terms of the visual, which is something like the meme. Um, We're sitting there and thinking we are seeing memes pretty much everywhere. They're different in different places, but why are they there? What, what are these memes doing? And as a result of the analysis, the comparative analysis across here, we start to come up with a general notion of the meme. And we found that one of the main differences, I mean, like in England, you tend to only post funny memes. But in some of the other areas we work, um, there's a lot of it is quite serious, a lot of it is actually quite religious, um, as in a, a meme like this. Um, although you're also getting, um, this is a, a Trini one, yeah? Um, where, and um, sort of the funny memes. But that one of the, what we found, we ended up calling memes the moral police of the Internet. The moral police of the Internet. Because what we found was that memes tended to be moral commentary. They tended to be, you know, you might disparage a political view you don't like. You might... Uh, be a Pentecostal who's trying to encourage people to actually take on um, the values um, that you support. Or you might be a Chilean who's fed up with the people in the metropolitan area looking down upon you and you're having a go back at them by making some kind of rude remark about Chile. Um, and if you pull all these together, you can see how these, th- this kind of sharing of morality. And then when you look at the context, which is what you study in ethnography, who is posting memes and why are they posting? It's like, why do we post? What you find is a lot of people who are actually relatively shy, who probably wouldn't um, have a stream of opinion going out there, wouldn't want to give a long screed about what they think and their values. But they're comfortable sharing a value that is already encrypted within this particular kind of framework. So these memes work particularly well for people to try and influence others to uh, they basically one of the important factors behind why the internet, if you like, is so normative. How is it we study these different societies? And in each place we see this degree of conventionality in such a short time. Well this is one of the instruments because memes tell you kind of who you should be and more particularly as it were who you shouldn't be. Um, Okay, going on from there to—how long I've got? Going on from there to from the visual to the politics is a natural sequence because it turns out that when you want to understand the political impact of a lot of this, actually, it's the visual side that is really important. Now, why would that be? Well, the first thing to say is that there is a huge amount of stuff on politics and social media, vast. But the problem that we would tend to have with it is that an awful lot of it is about the very publicly available forms of social media. So you're going to get trillions of papers about Twitter because Twitter's easy to get data, right? Um, however, what you don't get so much is the encompassed sense of all that is going on because you don't get many papers on things like politics in WhatsApp because you've got to know somebody pretty well to actually follow their WhatsApp. So our responsibility was because we are sitting there for 15 months, is actually to try and not look for the politics. Indeed, we didn't look for any topic. We by and large, large, what we do is we sit there with the people as we get to know them, and we see to what degree does something actually come into their wall or whatever the frame is during that 15 months? And actually in general, there's an awful lot less politics than we would have anticipated. But when we look at the reasons why that might be, that becomes interesting because, yes, in some cases, like on the turkish syrian border, there is a serious danger um, to life and limb if you post the wrong thing, especially actually now, because the population we're dealing with is mainly Kurdish and Arab, not Turkish, even though it's in Turkey. Um, And you will know about the issues going on there, I suspect. Um, However, even there, The main reason people were not posting politically was not that. It was because these are social media. They are basically frames in which you're socialising with your family, with your friends. And politics tends to be divisive. Um, Politics is a problem. So if you basically see this as a forum for keeping up with friends and relatives, you will avoid a topic that is divisive. It could also be, for example, back in this context, um, something like, well, because it's so visual, um, you actually find that uh, if you start posting the kind of photos you used to take, you know, here's me and and other people at a wedding. It juxtaposes you visually, let's say you're a woman and you juxtapose with men. It causes gossip. And gossip causes scandal. So these days, most of what's posted is food. Because food doesn't cause gossip, um, or any little bit, uh, and scandal, etc. So actually, it answers another question, which is, is social media a kind of representation of everyday life? On the whole, we find that social media is not... It's actually far more conservative in most of the societies we operate. It's a far more conservative rendition of life than offline life is. And the reason is because it's so visual. And that causes problems. So the representation of what you see has this kind of conservatism kind of built around it in a different way. Having said that, there are other arenas which work in the other direction. So you take something like WhatsApp or Messenger Service or Facebook Messengers, then you get this. Then you get an interesting and unprecedented transformation in something like gender relations. Because it is really the first time that young men and young women are able to contact each other directly, in this case, outside of the surveillance of their families. Um, now, running out of time. So basically, let me do two other quick things. Um, One is, of course, a major point of what we're trying to say is that these vary from place to place to place. So if you think about, again, this visual form, right, and how do people post. Um, In the Brazilian site, people tend to post aspirationally. So they're never going to post a photo against the bare brick walls of their half-made house that they actually live in. They're going to post against a swimming pool or a gym or something like that. So then you think, oh, social media is for posting aspirationally in terms of class terms. Only then you swap over to our Chilean site in the north of Chile and you find the exact opposite. Chilean posting is all about everybody being the same. The one thing you must not be is pretentious or different. Even things like indigeneity is suppressed when it comes to posting because they're trying to create a respectable domesticity having come out also of the fragility of poverty and they want to do it by being a collective and they want to do it by an egalitarian frame so you anything that the Brazilians posted will be seen as pretentious and false and not acceptable in that Chilean context and the same goes with some of the big debates that are, co- that, that are around social media. So, for example, um, just to the last one, when I'm in England, the, the problem of social media is all about the threat to privacy, right? It's all about, oh, these companies know everything about you, target advertising, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And therefore, you just assume that this is going to be seen as the issue of social media wherever you are until you realize that for half the world, because most people actually live in places like South Asia or East Asia, for half the world, if your tradition is living in extended families, if you didn't have a bedroom to yourself, if people didn't knock on doors, um, actually, this may be the first time, social media and your smartphone, that you've even experienced what we would normally call privacy. And this is what this speaks to, okay? Somebody in a factory in China saying, you know, I mean, you know, they all they in dormitories. They've never had privacy. Finally, with the technology, it's the first time they can have that. Okay, so I don't think I can do more on the substantive stuff, given time. Let me just talk about, finally, about this. When you have a topic like this, um, one of the differences between other topics we could have studied... Is that absolutely everybody is interested in social media? Um, This is a public interest. And I think that gives you a particular responsibility as academics. And one way of understanding that responsibility is having studied social media and the use of these digital technologies and the way people use them, can you then, as an academic, Use that same knowledge, what you have learnt, to rethink the way we, in academia, disseminate the knowledge that has come through our scholarship. Because if it just stays within the canons of certain traditions of academic discourse, um, it isn't going to reach that wider public. Who would actually like to know? So one of the things we've tried to develop in this project is the same kind of holistic imagination of the world that comes with the global study also then gets reproduced in a kind of holistic imagination of how academics in the future can actually disseminate the results of their work. And again it's like if you, it's called a scalable dissemination because the way we see it is this. At one end you're doing your regular journal articles. You know, those boring or theoretical or whatever they are things that academics like to read and you should be doing, but nobody else wants to read, right? It's what we do for ourselves. And obviously we have a responsibility for doing that and we are producing lots of these articles and they go through the normal processes. Um, We, however, have a load of findings um, that pertain to the particular places and they're really interesting stories um, that we think people would want to read. So everybody who was in this project not only collaborated because we studied the same thing each month when we were in the field, same emphasis, we also wrote each of us a book with the same chapter headings, which actually then exposes just how different each place is from, from the other. And the books are all coming out as open-access books um, with UCL Press. Three of them are out at the moment, so you can download them now. And the next one is the Chilean one. And then September, the two Chinese ones will come out, and the rest will come out subsequently. And one of the points about these books is we all agreed that inasmuch as we discuss other, other academics, it's in the footnotes. Because that's of interest to us but it's not particularly of interest to the general public. They want to know how did people use social media and how do you account for it? Um, not whether we're in alignment with any particular other kind of debate, right? So it's not we don't have that, but we relegate it to footnotes so that this is accessible. And one of the results of that, I mean, already, I think in the first month, we got 10,000 downloads. And you, anyone who does academic books knows that's not what you normally get, right? Um, you get read. But however, that's still relatively intimidating. These are monographs, right? So then we move on to um, an e-learning course which we're doing with FutureLearn, um, in which we put all our material into a five-week course, um, and this starts to learn from the way we see other people learning. Because if you listen to people like, um, well, Sheba Muhammad is also based here, doing her fieldwork, also in Trinidad, and she finds that, you know, informal learning is so much dominated now by five-minute YouTubes. So if you want to get to people, do five-minute YouTubes. That's what they will look at. So what dominates this is indeed YouTube's of five minutes or less. And then going, and then going beyond that... We produced a website and we all took short films while we were in the field. And the website, which is called Why We Post, is, has over 100 films in it and lots of little stories in it. And that's the most accessible end of this. And the other thing we did was we made the commitment that all of this material, the website, the e-learning course, would be available in all the languages of all the sites where we worked. So what you have then is the same kind of holistic attitude to the dissemination of the material as you do to the production of the material. Scale it so that it actually you don't tell people where they are in relation to this. They come to it at the place that is comfortable for them. And that, I think, is that.